My brothers and sisters in the faith, from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, from our Counselor and Comforter and Strength, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. What an outpouring of people on such a dismal evening. And I'm looking for my good friend, Sister Marilyn, from St. Dominic's. Did she make it? She called and said if she could get a car from the convent, there would be a group of them here. I had the unusual opportunity a few weeks ago of visiting St. Dominic's High School, and Sister Marilyn said, why don't I take the opportunity to talk to her religion classes? And to my great joy, I discovered that we have a common love for the Word of God and for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And she said she would try to be here, maybe she's still coming. I'd like you to take the Bibles in your pews, please, and turn to the 38th chapter of the book of Job. Like Pastor Matzab says, you open it in the middle and you make a small left turn. <laughs> Job, which is probably the oldest book of the Bible, the 38th chapter, God is speaking. In verse 1, he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And for the entire chapter, God is asking Job questions. And I'd like to turn to verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Right away, we're in astronomy, which is my thing. I teach astronomy down the street here. And the first week of the course, the students have to know the Pleiades and Orion. And if it were only clear outside right now, you could see it right now. Orion is the most beautiful constellation in the entire sky. It was known to Job thousands of years ago. And when it gets clear again one of these evenings, look in the east. They're the only three bright stars in a row in the entire sky. That's the belt of Orion. That's why it says, can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you get up there and do anything with those stars, Job? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? If you look a little bit above the belt of Orion, there's a beautiful group of six bright stars known as the Seven Sisters. <laughs> it's a quiz question. How many stars in the Seven Sisters? Six. <laughs> One ran away. And if you put a telescope on the Pleiades, it's a very beautiful sight. Bright blue hot stars. Can you lead forth the Mazareth in their season? Well, how can you lead it forth if you don't know what it is? The Mazareth is a Hebrew word for the constellations. Can you lead the constellations across the sky one after the other? Can you guide the bear with its children? The bear is the constellation in the north that never sets. It's circumpolar. It goes round and round day and night. It doesn't set like the sun and moon. In the bear is the constellation or group of stars, the Big Dipper. So the Big Dipper is a part of the, the Great Bear, and the American Indian had the tradition when the Great Bear sets below the North Star, not under the horizon, but when it dips below the North Star, like right now, if you go outside and you see it below the North Star, that's the time for the bears to hibernate. And when it comes out again in the springtime on the other side of the North Star in the evening, then the bears come out. I don't know how they can see it in there, but that's the time the Indians said the bears stopped hibernating. 
Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Job didn't say a word. Of course not. Who do you think you are, Job, complaining that things have happened to you? You can't do any of these things. Can you establish their rule on the earth? Well, the answer to the question is found in the New Testament. Now make a right turn into the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to read this passage from the New International Version. It makes a little bit of difference which Bible you read. I discovered recently you first want to find out whether the person who translated the Bible was a believer. There are a lot of people translating the Bible who don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, don't bother reading that. Read the one that was written by gospel-oriented, Bible-believing Christian scholars. And there are a lot of them. And the New International Version and the Revised Standard you have in your pews, the King James, of the 75 English Bibles, there are a few that are written by Bible-believing scholars. Some of the others are translated by people who think it's great literature, like Beowulf, one of the people I was with before is studying Beowulf. Well, some think it's like Beowulf, only not the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Job could not answer God without faith. And that's what the book of Job is there for to show that this man had faith. I know that my Redeemer liveth was from Job. In all his troubles, he did not lose his faith in God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, only through faith can we understand that. And then he makes a very modern nuclear energy statement. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. That's a very mysterious sounding verse that what is made was not made of things that are visible. Some people think that this was the first clue to the fact that all matter is made of atoms that you cannot see, that atoms are totally invisible to us. And recently in Newsday, maybe you saw the article, maybe you kind of glanced over it in a hurry, that physicists in Vienna just announced that they have discovered evidence of the gluon. What in the world is a gluon? It cost millions and millions of taxpayer dollars to find a gluon. And they rejoiced because for the first time it appeared that we're getting somewhere in understanding what matter is made of. When I was in school, matter was made out of protons, neutrons, electrons, three. Now there are 200 particles, and perhaps they're all in turn made of something else. Somebody has called them quarks. I, I wrote to the man who thought that word up. I said, where did you get that name? And he said, it came to me. <laughs> in German, and I have a little German background, it means cottage cheese. <laughs> He said, no, he saw the word in a book, Finian's Rainbow, a novel, where a fellow gets up out of his sleep and he says, three quarks for Mr. Mark, which means nothing. It's a nonsense sentence. Everything, it seems, may be made of quarks. 
What holds them together? You guessed it. Gluons. <laughs> Out in Upton, Suffolk County, they are building a machine for $375 million. Tax money without overruns to find quarks. <laughs> it's called Isabel. <laughs> I means intersecting. S, storage, accelerator, ISA. It's a colliding atom smasher. So far, we've just been shooting beams at a stationary wall. Most of the energy goes into the wall. Now, scientists figured out if you have two intersecting atom smashers hitting each other head on, like a car collision, we get more bang out of our money. <laughs> It'll be done in 1985. Isabel, I said, what's Bell? They said, for the beauty of the information that we're going to learn. The writer of Hebrews said, everything is made out of things that are invisible. How true that is. And the end is not in sight. I'm sure that, well, there's not only one kind of quark, now we're up to 18. Earl Lane, my good friend at Newsday, who wrote the article on quarks a few weeks ago, told me on the phone, I called, I said, Earl did a beautiful job of this thing in physics. He said, it's amazing. When I write about physics, I never get a phone call. But I'm very happy you wrote. I said, one thing, Earl. You said there are six quarks. He even had pictures on the front page of part two. I said, there are 18. He said, well, I uh, didn't want to confuse the issue. <laughs> They're called colored quarks, charmed quarks, anti-charmed quarks. They can't think up strange enough names. By faith, Hebrews says, we understand that all this was done at God's command. And I'm happy to tell you that among the scientists who are doing this work, more and more of them are talking about simple faith in the Creator. There was a time when it was unpopular to talk about faith in a science laboratory. I want to quote a little bit from a nice new little book called God and the Astronomers, written by Dr. Robert Jastrow, who is one of America's foremost astronomers. Unless you think that this man comes to the subject with a bias, he starts on page one with the statement, when an astronomer writes about God, this is not a religious book, this is a book for astronomers, his colleagues assume he's either over the hill or going bonkers. In my case, says Jastrow, it should be understood from the start that I am an agnostic. And how does he end his book? He says, the scientist's pursuit of the past, and this is a book of the history of astronomy, ends in the moment of creation. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by everyone but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, to which St. Augustine added, who can understand this mystery or explain it to others? The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. And he goes on to say that the scientist today is absolutely forced to the conclusion that God created the universe. 
And he says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there all along. <laughs> One of the things that, through the will of the Lord, Margaret and I have become involved in over the past 10 or more years is chasing eclipses around the world. If you haven't seen a total solar eclipse, you don't know what we're talking about. If you have, I don't have to talk about it. It's the most awesome thing in the universe as far as I'm concerned. When at midday the stars come out and the sun goes dark, no wonder primitive nations and peoples became afraid and started sacrificing for the sun to come back. Recently, two astronomers at Boston University published a paper on eclipses in Physics Today, which is the prestigious magazine of physics, in which they explored the possibilities of having eclipses in the first place. You see, it turns out mathematically that the Earth is the only place from which you can see an eclipse of the sun. There are 35 or so other moons in the universe, in the solar system. None of them is exactly the right size and at the right distance to cover the sun perfectly, as does our single moon. The possibility of this being by chance is very large, very remote possibility. And the possibility, he says, furthermore, these two doctors at Boston University, that this is the only planet that we now know for sure in the solar system is inhabited. This chance coincidence is so remarkably small that they end their scientific document with the sentence, therefore, there is a God. I'm telling you, it is becoming absolutely difficult for a scientist or anyone else today in his right mind to be an atheist. Anyone who uses his powers of reason knows, as the Bible says, by faith we know that it was created by God. One more example from one other science. Sir John Eccles a renowned physiologist addressed a group of Nobel Prize winners. We've just heard recently about the new Nobel Prize winner, the most prestigious prize in science, perhaps in all the world. The winners in science were called together in Minnesota to listen to addresses by three or four of their colleagues. I had the great good fortune to cover this as a reporter and to get acquainted with Sir John Eccles and all the others as they came off the plane. Sir John Eccles delivered a paper to these people at which some 4,000 students were listening. And he said, and his paper was entitled, The Brain-Mind Problem. He said to that group of assembled scientists and students that we have proved today that man has a soul. He said, in the laboratory, it is impossible to find where in the human brain the neurons and synapses exist to explain our memory. He can prove, in fact, that a person can have a thought 
before the nerves that produce the thought are activated. But he cannot prove, he said, why a person who gets up in the morning thinks he is the same person who went to sleep last night. <laughs> there is no scientific explanation, he said. It is the person's mind. And the brain, which is a physical entity, cannot understand the mind. It is like a pot trying to understand the potter. And therefore, man has an immortal soul. He said, we cannot die because our real self is not physical in the first place. There were no objections to that paper. Not from the scientists. There were some objections by a few of the theologians present. And there I began to realize that when Satan wants to distort the truth, he starts in the place where we're least likely to look, in the churches. How comforting this summer, when for the first time at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 500 of the world's most renowned scientists and theologians gathered at the request of the scientists to discuss, to discuss the topic that I have chosen for this evening, science and faith. And I've added to that the power of God. You see, scientists have discovered in the last 10 years or so that all the wonderful answers that we were promised in the World's Fair, in the carousels that were going around and there was a dog in front there and it got better at refrigerators and everything in each reviving, revolving thing, that these things were not happening. Not only were all the carousels of progress not happening, but we got other problems we never even figured on. Atomic energy was to cure everything in 1948. Instead, it made problems that are dividing America. The conference was requested by scientists, and it moved the reporter to write after the conference was over, after 12 days of listening to these people in five languages, Russians included, is the centuries-old conflict between science and religion over? Is there an end to the conflict that had a nervous church stop the courageous Galileo? Is there an end to the conflict that gave religion the reputation of being anti-intellectual? From the looks of an impressive World Conference on Science and Religion at MIT this week, the answer to those questions is yes. And the reporter concluded his article by saying very clearly, the conference was dominated by a Christian perspective. Many speakers insisted that Christianity is the way out of the technological mire in which mankind has caught itself. The other major faiths of the world went almost unnoticed. So it seems that after a hundred or more years, science and religion, the war that's been going on, is cooling off. The swords are being beaten to plowshares. Now the question arises, who will furnish the direction in which the word of God is meant to go? Where are the leaders? Where is the wellspring from which the solution of these problems should come? 
partly as an answer to that question, I'd like to tell you what some of the people who are considered the most renowned scientists and theologians in the world today are saying. It was my good fortune not long ago to be given the means whereby to travel to a number of countries and interview the world's top scientists, Nobel Prize winners and others. To my surprise, in writing to a hundred of these people for interviews, and all I said was, I want to talk to you about God. Fifty of them said yes, in nine different countries. Some of whom had not given interviews, they told me, to the press for 20 years. Einstein's close friend, Max Born, in his 80s, said, I have not granted an interview to a newspaper person in 20 years, but no one has ever asked me about my religion. Please come. And so one after the other, in a remarkable series of witnessing, told me, science knows there is a God. And the common thought that scientists, for the most part, through great intellectual powers, no longer need God, this is a fallacy. I don't know about other professions and walks of life, but I came away with the feeling that the percentage of scientists who believe in God is larger than it is in other professions. Out of 38 that I finally recorded on tape, only two said they were atheists. And both of those people were very uncomfortable in telling me about it. One in Oslo said, before we start, I want to tell you I'm an atheist. Maybe you don't want to talk to me. So why shouldn't I talk to you if you're an atheist? I didn't even tell you what I was. <laughs> and he said, well, because as an atheist, I have to go home and worry about everything. <laughs> you can go home, he said, you can pray. That you're I got the insight that if a person has faith and makes that faith evident in his prayers, he should thank God on his knees for it. This person could not. I said, why don't you just pray and have faith? He said, I can't. Not by our powers of reason, you see, do we bring others to faith. I hope by this time the man through this exchange or in some other experiences in his life has come to faith by the grace of God. But it's not through reason. By faith, James said, we know these things. Another very thrilling experience was to talk to Dr. Margaret Mead just before she died. We were on the same ship looking at an eclipse in 1977. And you take your courage in hand and you go up to this world famous person, probably the most famous woman scientist at that time, relaxing on a deck chair. And I said, Dr. Mead, can I talk to you about God? Yes. And I said, I've listened to your lectures on shipboard now for several evenings, but one thing I would like to ask you, what do you think about God? And she said, will you please put down that I am a post-agnostic? I said, what is a post-agnostic? <laughs> she said, a post-agnostic is a person who has had agnostics in their relationship for generations, but I have become a Christian. 
She said, I have seen that all over the world, tribes of every kind that I've studied as an anthropologist need religion. It's an absolute need for them. And so I have become a Christian. And so one after the other, I could go on and on. One other one might serve the purpose in another field that I'm more at home with than Dr. Margaret Mead, not of all whose theories I agree with. But J. Allen Hynek, Mr. UFO. Hynek probably has studied more UFO reports than any other human being. 20 years as a consultant for the Air Force. And when the Air Force finally printed their results, they ignored everything Hynek said. And Dr. Hynek went right up to the roof. He said, absolutely ridiculous. They're whitewashing the whole thing. They want people to think that they know everything. I'm going to write my own book about what I learned and his UFO experience. If you want to read only one book, and that's all you should read, and nobody else really knows very much about him, it's The UFO Experience by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And I asked him, Dr. Hynek, what do you believe about God? And of all the 38 interviews, here was one that I had the feeling did his homework. He pulls out notes. He said, I'm ready for you. I've written these things down. <laughs> and so I don't get it wrong. I want to read verbatim what he said. Among many other things, he went on for an hour. With some scientists, Heineck said, it is not science or religion. It's both religion and science to make a totally new concept. We're in the situation, he said, of a man who wants to build a beautiful mansion in which to live. He wants a library, a music room, a swimming pool, a master bedroom, a nice dining room, a kitchen, everything else. But as he looks around, he sees that he has just a limited number of bricks. What does he do? Does he decide just to build a tiny little hovel in which to live? I say no. I think I've solved that problem this way. I use imaginary bricks. I go ahead and build my mansion and live in it with one rule. I will never substitute an imaginary brick if a real one is available. And he goes on to explain what he means by his imaginary bricks. He means his faith. To build his life, he said, he uses the bricks that he can grasp with his reason, and then when he comes to things that he cannot explain with his reason, and he mentions specifically angels, life after death, whatever the Bible teaches, he puts those imaginary bricks into his house of life. And when somebody comes and asks, how come there are no bricks in this one place? He says, those are the bricks of my faith. And I say, after listening over and over, so this kind of witness, I began to realize that we have a completely untapped resource of individuals out there who are willing to take the lead or to follow a leader in establishing a erection for our future and for the church. Now the other question is much more sensitive. And that is, if scientists are coming to faith or at least to the realization that God exists and that it's no longer embarrassing to talk about it, how religious and how biblical are today's churches? Right after the MIT conference, we hurried down to Susquehanna University where there was a large gathering of Christians 
to be inspired in a conference of the Holy Spirit. In one seminar, after the presentation was over, and it was a very fine one, by a professor at Gettysburg University who was talking about <coughs> Luther and the mystics of his time, and Luther's healing services, which I didn't know existed. A woman asked a question from our seminar group, and she said, Professor, after listening to you, I can't help but ask this question. Why is it that in a recent Sunday school conference, the speaker, a theologian, told us that we should no longer teach our classes in Sunday school the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, the speaker did not answer that question. He said, there is someone else here who is more qualified than I am because he has his doctor's degree in theology. The man rose to his feet and said, the answer to that question is very difficult, but it has to do with the fact that today many theologians have gotten away from the idea that the Bible is literally the word of God. We no longer, he said, quote, worship that paper pope. The woman was crushed. I said to the man, I don't think that it is a matter of worshiping a paper pope. I think it is a matter of you abandoning the word of God. People came up to me, pastors after this seminar, and said we should have had the courage to get up and cheer because this is the problem in our church today. That the very people who are to provide leadership are abandoning the word of God to which they are committed as theologians. I'd like to close with a three-way Bible message. We've heard from Job. We've heard from the writers to the Hebrews. We've heard from scientists who know that God had to create the universe. But one thing we have not yet emphasized, and that is that this same God who is being forced on the attention of people and whom others are deliberately trying to abandon has placed at our disposal a power supply for the task ahead of us. This time I'd like to turn to Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now he's made the universe. That's big. He glued it together with gluons. <laughs> That's probably even bigger. <laughs> and thank God that we can talk about this today, not just in churches, but in classrooms. People, not even Mrs. O'Hare has objected to my saying this very thing in the classroom. But there's another kind of power. 
This morning a man came to me and said he had just returned from London and he said, do I know that there is a thing coming in the early 80s where the planets are going to line up and pull part of California into the water and that in England they're spending lots of money building huge walls for the big tides that are coming. I've heard about that, yes. The planets are going to line up early in 1980s. I don't believe they're going to pull anything anywhere, but I told them that maybe I'll get on high ground just in case. <laughs> <laughs> That's the power of creation. That power is still there. But there's a second kind of power, a second kind of thing that God can do that's immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. You know, the word power, as much as we talk about the shortage of it in this world, the word power is in the Bible more than 200 times. There's no power shortage in here. No outage, no brownout, nothing. 200 times. Listen to the second kind of power God promised us. Matthew 9, 6. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And in John 1, 12, to all who believe in his name, he gives power to become the children of God. That physicist in Oslo did not have the power to become a child of God. Jesus can give him that power. All he has to do is ask. And what wonderful things can take place when you ask for that power. In the, in the Bible we see where Christ healed a paralytic man, he forgave his sins, and the, the healing of his body was a comparatively minor thing after that. A very similar thing was brought to our attention in September. Maybe you heard about it when Miss America testified to the healing in her life. Here's the newspaper article. In an interview with Miss America, she said, first she was crippled. It says she had an auto accident and the doctors had little hope that she would ever be able to use her legs normally. Her face was cut and bruised, her back injured, her left leg was completely crushed. She had to have more than 100 stitches and was in traction for months. Then, Miss Pruitt said, God made a cocoon of calcium that formed another bone from the tiny bits of crushed bone in my left leg. And at a revival meeting several years after the accident, she saw her shortened leg grow instantaneously two inches. Miss Pruitt plans to offer 10% of her earnings as Miss America for the work of God. That's the power of Christ. Thank God for the freedom to proclaim that. And then there's a third and final kind of power God promises us in the Bible. This one is in Acts 1 verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What kind of power is that? We know very well, this group this evening, of what kind of power the Holy Spirit brings with him. The power to transform lives. To turn a person completely around from the way he's going and to make him a dynamic Christian individual. Too long, even in our church, we have emphasized Christianity as a past event it's something that took place on the cross. That's just the beginning. It is not just a past event. It's an ongoing process. 
It's not something you're ever finished with. And it's something that more and more people have to see and hear coming from you and me. I like to tell the story of where a father sent his son to college. And he said, son, now you've been in a Christian home. And when you get to school, you're going to be under all kinds of other influences. Everyone trying to convince you to do other things. It'll endanger your faith. Be on your guard. A little while later, the son wrote back. And after he asked for the money, as is usual in the first paragraph, <laughs> he said, Dad, nothing to worry about concerning that other thing you told me. Nobody here knows I'm a Christian. <laughs> Friends, there's no such thing as nobody knowing that we're Christians. Jesus told us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And this is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. Christ goes much farther. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, that means we have to keep this in us, not consider it a paper something or other. The word of God. And if that remains in us, he says, ask whatever you wish. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. I see some of my students here for extra credit. It's <laughs> 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 10 points. <laughs> I like to tell them, and this is borrowing from World War II, it dates me a little bit. Praise the Lord and pass the examination. <laughs> If my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. Friends, let's commit our lives to that cause. Praise his holy name. Amen. Amen.